Welcome everyone to episode 115, Motor Neurons. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, back to the Stem Cell Podcast, brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Dalen? I'm feeling good, Kiki. I have a bright outlook today. I don't know what it is. I just had a nice vacation, as you probably know, one of many. It's that vitamin D. It's like I getting think in. It is. <laughs> although it's freezing cold outside, but you're right. I got the vitamin D. The life is looking bright. Although this is where my wife always says, when I get reflective on this, she's like, yeah, this is the scene in the movie where they're driving on the road and they get T-boned right after. <laughs> it's right. like, oh, isn't life beautiful? <laughs> I had that thought this morning. For some reason, I was driving this morning and I, as I'm driving, I'm like, oh, why is it that terrible things always happen to good people? These are my <laughs> thoughts while I drive. Yeah. Yes, okay. Cue the T-bone. <laughs> well, I hope that is not on the trajectory, on the path for you. I hope not too. But we have a great show ahead, right? So yeah, at least there's that. There is that. We're going to be in this moment right now. Let's get down to business. Make sure everyone out there that you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you can subscribe to our newsletter. You can also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And you can follow us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And don't forget, if you are not subscribed yet, subscribe or tell your friends to subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher so that new episodes will automatically download to their devices. Okay, like I said, we do have a great show today. In addition to all of our latest science and stem cell news roundupping, we will be talking with Evangelos Kiskinis from Northwestern University about his work using stem cells to gain insight into motor neurons and ALS. Yes, yes, Kiki Evangelos. Oh, I love scientists with cool names. We're going to get to that and the roundupping. But before we do, you know, this is a time of the show each episode where we remind our listeners of the Stem Cells Connects on newsletters. These newsletters were started by Stem Cell President and CEO, Dr. Alan Eaves, who compiled the first Connects on newsletter, which was Cell Therapy News, all by himself, sent it to his colleagues. 16 years ago, he might be doing them by himself still, for all we know. Probably not, but maybe. Since then, there have been almost a thousand issues. So probably not doing it himself. But a thousand issues of cell therapy news published, and there are now 20 of these weekly connects on newsletters. Almost 70,000 subscriptions globally. So you don't be the last one to get on the boat, guys. Subscribe to Cell Therapy News, the original Connects on Science newsletter, as well as all those other ones, 19 weekly newsletters at stemcellnewsletters.com. All right, Kiki, with that done, I'm ready to hear. Give me some news. That's right. I have some news. Man, if people subscribe to this podcast and all those newsletters, they're going to know everything. I mean, that's it. <laughs> You've got all Said the information. Left. Putting nothing us out left. of business. Yeah. All right. So to start off on the roundup today, I've got norovirus. Oh, no. I'm sorry to no, hear that. No. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You hear the word and cringe. Norovirus is the virus that has you praying to the porcelain god for 24 hours to a couple of days, depending on how badly you are affected by the infection. And researchers 
thank goodness. I, I was hoping somebody's trying to figure out this infection and how to stop it. And researchers are working on it. They haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> According to a report in the April 13 issue of Science Magazine, what they have figured out is the target. What cell in the digestive system norovirus targets? You know what it is? The tuft cells. What are those? They are immune cells in the digestive tract, and they release an interleukin, interleukin-25 so researchers were kind of trying to figure out whether or not norovirus was actually dependent on the interleukin, whether it affected bacteria in the digestive tract, or whether it was specifically these tuft cells. And their research actually shows very specifically that it is the tuft cells that are the target, not anything else. It's not bacteria. It's not specific immune receptors, but they don't know why and they don't know exactly what is going on. So they, they don't know exactly the mechanism of how it affects the inflammation and the drastic response your body has to the infection. They just know that it happens. Additionally, they're speculating that an outside trigger, such as an infection, might be something that unleashes other diseases like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. The researchers note from another study, mice genetically predisposed to have Crohn's disease developed symptoms of that disease after being infected with norovirus. So norovirus infection may be something of a doorway to, or at least something, it could be a doorway to these other diseases, or it could be a factor that will tell us more about how these other diseases occur. Can't happen soon enough. That is vicious. My son has one of those right now, and it's a killer. It breaks my heart every time. You see him waking up in the middle of the night to go poop. Poor kid. Oh, no. Yeah, oh, no. It, and it puts you out. Um, we had norovirus around New Year's, and, I mean, you have to quarantine yourself for a significant amount of time. Norovirus on any surface, if you don't get it clean, it'll sit in a carpet for up to two weeks. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Two weeks. So I'm <laughs> Two weeks in the carpet. Ah! What's the countdown it before, is per, I'm, it is persistent. I'm my, before I'm making my runs to the bathroom, Kiki? Do I have a chance or am I just totally hosed? It depends on how, how well you're uh, keeping your son <laughs> isolated or keeping yourself, your hands clean and oh, not no, breathing well. around your child. You, you might oh, be hosed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yep. glad we're recording now. <laughs> yep. Let's get this done. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe there's norovirus that does this terrible thing to us, but maybe there are viruses that can do good for us as well. Researchers reporting in March 20th at the annual meeting of the American Chemical Society have devised a way to turn viruses into nanobots. They've taken bacteriophages. These bacteriophages, alternately called phages, they infect bacteria. Specifically, they don't infect people. They only infect bacteria. And the phages insert their DNA into the bacterial genome using the bacterial genetic machinery to replicate themselves, cause the bacteria to lice and explode and spread their viral particles all over the place. But how does this help us? What they've done is they've added other tags, a magnetic tag to the virus, as well as specific DNA 
that told the bacteria in addition to replicating the viral DNA to also make a detectable enzyme so that researchers could figure out where it was. And between the magnetic tag and the DNA enzyme, they were able to create these basically controllable nanobots to be able to corral bacteria into one particular place using magnets to put the bacteria into one place, reveal themselves, which would then enable the researchers to destroy them. <laughs> so the benefit of this is that it could be useful for exposing E. coli or other infectious bacteria in the foods that we eat and drink. So instead of waiting for a government organization to tell you that there is a salmonella outbreak or an E. coli outbreak in your lettuce or in your orange juice, that maybe it would simply turn a particular color in the manufacturing plant before it ever got to you. Additionally, it could also prove useful for blood or other human samples. And maybe, you know, it could let people know what's infecting, where it's infecting, and then help get rid of infectious things that hurt us. Yeah, man, we need some of that for QC, right? They, I heard they just recalled like 20 million eggs or something. Yeah. 33 people got sick. So this something happens, I feel like, every few weeks. So um, this is something good. And industrial use, the diagnostic use, boom. Yep. Get them phages to work. Put the phages to work. I love phages. I want to know more about phages. I think it's just a phage of your life. Possibly. <laughs> but um bump. A new study out. This is part of the Pan Cancer Atlas Project, researchers mapping cancer genomes. They are saying that the cancer textbooks should be rewritten based on their analysis of these cancer genomes. Historically, cancer types have been classified by where in the body they pop up, right? So if it's breast cancer, it's in the breast, right? Colon cancer, in the colon. They are treated based on the places that they are popping up. But this new study found that all 33 cancer types can be reclassified into 28 different molecular types, or what they call clusters, based on their cellular and genetic makeup and completely independent of their origin in the body. So you can have particular molecular similarities or these clusters that can be found in different areas of the body. So maybe it's a particular cancer type that pops up because of a specific genetic mutation in the breast, but it's not what you would, you don't want to treat it with the usual breast cancer route of treatment. So this could lead to new ways to treat cancer, also new ways to characterize different cancers. Professor Christopher Benz from the Buck Institute for Research on Aging and Cancer, he said, it's time to rewrite the textbooks on cancer. It's time to break down the silos in clinical oncology that make it difficult for patients to take advantage of this paradigm shift in cancer classification. And Dr. Francis Collins from the NIH, he says, this project is the culmination of more than a decade of groundbreaking work. This analysis provides cancer researchers with unprecedented understanding of how, where, and why tumors arise in humans, enabling better informed clinical trials and future treatments. Well, whoever's writing the textbooks better get to work. That's got to be an expensive proposition. Well, let's hold off on rewriting any textbooks until we've got a pretty good view. <laughs> until we know a little bit better, right? Oh, one study. But I mean, this is a pretty big study. No, it is. It is. It's bringing a together. Big deal. Yeah. I don't want to minimize it, but it's ballsy. Whenever you open with like, hey guys, I'm going to show you, tell you some science, but first, Rewrite. get out your printing presses. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, but this is, could have huge implications for research down the road. And as I finish off my part of the roundup, I'm sitting here sipping my coffee. And you know what I'm not worried about? Oh, acrylamide. I'm not worried about getting cancer from my cup of coffee. I'm really not. Uh, I, I guess. I mean, did you know the news is out? Californians are soon having to post cancer warnings at all cafes places that serve coffee to the public, places that sell coffee to the public. Like cigarettes, coffee is considered a carcinogen, at least according to California. Wow. Research has shown that it contains acrylamide. It's a byproduct of the roasting process. And acrylamide, I mean, it's in potato chips. It's something that pops up when you barbecue your meat. There's acrylamide all over the place, also cigarette smoke. So it is a carcinogen, but the levels of acrylamide that are in the coffee is what is at issue. Research has not really shown that coffee causes cancer. There's nothing that suggests it at this point in time. The World Health Organization does not consider coffee a carcinogen. So what's up, California? California is usually pretty forward about stuff, you know? I'm always like, well, if California is doing it, everybody's going to be doing it in 10 years. In this case, I think maybe they're, they're pushing a little bit, maybe a little bit. I think so. I think they're pushing it a little bit. I mean, it's always good for people to be informed so that they can make informed decisions about what they want to put in their bodies. But at this point in time, you're probably going to be more affected by the caffeine in coffee than you are by the acrylamide just based on the evidence. A hundred percent. I would worry about your blood pressure. I am not worrying. There's got to be like people, <laughs> there's people out there that drink like 10 cups a day. You know, you think something would have come out in terms of like, you know, correlation between high volume and cancer, right? You come would, on. Can't, coffee's been in play for a hundred years. Yeah. Yep. So keep on drinking, Kiki. Keep on drinking. Not only in play for a hundred years or more, but also consumed by millions of of people, yes. billions of people around yeah. the world. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm drinking tea myself, but you go ahead, girl. You go ahead. I will. I'm going to keep <laughs> it up. My morning beverage of choice. Tell me about stem cells. What's going on this week? Well, I'm going to start in the blood. This is a big story because it's one of these paradigm shifts, or maybe I would say more dogma on disruptive kind of stories. It's in the blood, you know, little background, the stem cells of blood, ever we've talked about it a million times, everybody loves these stem cells because they can, one single hematopoietic stem cell can repopulate all your blood lineages, blah, blah, blah. But the real key to the stem cell's potency is the niche, you know, the microenvironment. People have been sweating the niche for hematopoietic stem cells since they knew they existed, thinking that the signals from this niche is what governs the activity of stem cells, makes them both self-renew or, you know, repopulate themselves as well as differentiate. And it's the balance of those signals that dictates whether they do one or the other. So the idea was that there's niche-derived factors mostly in the bone marrow, you know, because that's where the stem cells reside. But this new story in science from Lei Ding's group shows that that's not the case, all right? So thrombopoietin, which is the jammy, that's the cytokine that does a lot for regulating hematopoietic stem cell maintenance in mice, in vivo, and in humans. And it was thought that this was produced in the niche, in the bone marrow, but the truth is it's not, all right? So the first thing they did 
is in order to define where this thing was produced, they made this like TPO. They were able to to define where the TPO thermopoietin was expressed, and they showed that it was expressed specifically in the liver. All right, and so they had the idea. Wow, you know, it's maybe it's this kind of endocrine support type thing. There's like hormones do travel at a distance. This could be action at a distance, except from the liver governing the niche. But the more important thing that they did there is then they knocked out TPO, thrombopoietin from hematopoietic cells themselves, from osteoblasts, which were considered as maybe a candidate niche, bone marrow, mesenchymal stromal cells, which are the major potential niche cell in the bone marrow. And none of those insults affected the stem cell number or function. But when you specifically deleted TPO only from hepatocytes, the main liver cell, the bone marrow cells are depleted. So this is major evidence that there's this cross-organ factor. Essentially, TPO made and circulated from the liver is acting in the bone marrow to govern stem cell maintenance there. So this is like a new idea. It's this action at a distance idea. And it raises a lot of questions about like, what goes on when you have liver dysfunction? Maybe you're having a little bit cross effect or effect on your hematopoietic stem cell maintenance or, you know, it raises a lot of, uh, I guess, treatment flags in, in cases where you're going to be affecting the liver and how you might have an unintended effect on the niche there. So it's a real big idea. Another target for therapeutics and showing that TPO is really mostly coming from the liver. There you go. What do you say? I love this because it's this idea of the organs working in synchrony as a functioning system and not as completely isolated things, you know? So the bones creating the blood cells, they're affected by what's going on in the liver. There's all these things where something's happening in one part of the body, it's going to affect another part of the body. Yeah, I mean, we love our organ systems for what they are independently, but they're nothing without each other. Yeah, we've got to see the family. That's right. We family, the liver saying. We family, marrow. Yeah, this is important. It's good. Yeah, it is important. And, you know, I expect some kind of therapeutic to come out of this any minute, mm -hmm. but we'll wait and see. Before then, we're going to get to the lung. This is a story about the lung and engineering lung. Uh, this is a stem cell report story from the Center of Regenerative Medicine at Boston University and Boston Medical Center, in which the investigators, they engineered two new categories of lung epithelial cells in vitro from pluripotent stem cells. The way they kind of define these two unique cell types is using single-cell RNA sequencing to profile these groups. They were known as these air sac-like, called alveolospheres, and airway-like, or bronchospheres cells that were both then derived from pluripotent stem cells. These are new profiles. They're components associated with the center's open source stem cell repository and can be used to create lung tissue in vitro, enabling a testing of new drug treatments. This is another one of these ideas of using uh, pluripotent stem cells and induced pluripotent stem cells for kind of toxicology studies, but also to try and understand diseases affecting the lung, like emphysema, cystic fibrosis, acute respiratory distress syndrome, pulmonary fibrosis. These are all major causes of morbidity and mortality in the U.S., but there's not a lot of treatment options for these diseases. So creating these unique lung epithelial cell types in the lab, it's been tough in the past. 
But with this new approach and the mapping of expression profiles, these defined analyses, it looks like the researchers have kind of arrived at a discrete cellular population that they can focus on uh, for future study. From the senior author, Daryl Cotton, quote, these findings help us stay true to our mission of open source sharing of data sets, cells, and protocols with our colleagues who are dedicated to applying these tools to one day help patients. Okay. The global research community now has access to this information, which they can use to better understand these newly engineered cells and more quickly develop disease-specific cell line models that can be used to testing therapies and treatments for disease. So it's kind of an open source approach. They profile these cells, they give you a very rigorous characterization, and then they give it away. These are the best kind of scientists. Daryl Cotton. Did we have him on the show, Kiki? I think we did, yeah. We were smart to have him, and if we haven't... <laughs> got to get him on. Either way, we should get him on. I love these kind of scientists, Kiki. They're very generous. There's so much to sharing these days, especially, you know, sources of information about cells and the cells themselves, you know, giving people the opportunity to test different diseases. I mean, it's the more people are working on things, the faster we're going to get to solutions. Yeah, I mean, come on, Daryl Cotton, you can't do emphysema, cystic fibrosis, acute respiratory disease syndrome, pulmonary failure. You can't do it all. You can't do it all. He knows yeah. it. So he's going to share. Yeah. Spread it out through labs all everywhere. Open science. Let's move it. Share your science. We will. I'm going to share something with you right now. We talked about the vascularized brain organoids, neural spheres, last episode. Yes. And... Lo and behold, as soon as we talked about that, which I still am very impressed with, I'm going to circle back to that, out of Ben Waldo's group at UC Davis. Of course, that was in a modest publication. Of course, then Fred Gage has to come and blow it out of the water <laughs> with his Nature Biotechnology article. Well, you know, that's Fred Gage. It's what he does. Fred Gage, <laughs> nuclear Fred Gage. This is what he did. They did a similar survey. Remember, Ben Wilder, what he did, which I thought was cool, is they took ES cells, IPS cells, in fact, from a patient. Pretty cool. And they made like 50,000 ES cell, IPS cell derived endothelial cells. And then they made the neurosphere separately. And then they combined them and showed that they made vascularized this and that. And it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. they, what Gage and his group, they call him Fred 12 Gage, blow them up. And uh, they took neurospheres essentially the brain organoids they grew them like forever in vitro but they also implanted them in nsg mice and the real key here was they didn't add by the way ips or es cell derived endothelial cells as well but you know the title and the major focus here is that they need vascularized human brain organoids i think the point there being is that they could get them to survive in vivo and live for a long time like almost a year I think they went up to like 280 days in some of these graphs. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. But just a quick summary how they did it. They made the organoids, then they implanted them. They grew them up for like a few weeks, and then they implanted them in these cranial windows of NSG mice, which, I mean, right off the bat there, you're, it's a technical tour de force and Frankensteining and, and all that stuff all at once, which is why it's in Nature Biotechnology. But they made these cranial windows where they could by two photon microscopy, look into the deep tissue of the brain and track these cells, which are GFP, labeled GFP. I mean, pretty elegant, but very simple. They just labeled these cells with GFP, so they're all GFP positive. They dip right in the nurseries, they put them in the brain. I mean, simple, but big deal, big paper. 
Tell me, you love neuro. Every I time do. I this game, study like, is so exciting to me. Yeah, these cranial windows. I mean, they did lesion the brains of the mice. So they actually, you know, they took a chunk of brain out of the mouse brain and then put these grafts in. So it wasn't just like adding brain to the top of the brain. It was we're going to take yeah. some away and then replace it. And then the brain of the mouse accepted the human organoid and grew into it. Yes. Grew blood vessels into it, made connections, neural connections, and it was communicating. Yes. These mice behaved at the same level as control mice. Well, yes. Okay. There you go. Now we're getting Frankenstein-y. But that's, I, I mean, like, yes, they carved a chunk out. They put the chunk in. I have some, I wouldn't say criticism, I would say comments. But like you said, they took <laughs> these chunks out of the brain and 90% and of these mice lived on for many, many months after. So mm -hmm. they had really good survival in spite of all these insults. And I mean, the real the real deal here was, although it was like vascularized human brain organoids, which they did show by, they put in the cranial windows, show that the dextran could flow through. Kind of the comment I made about what was lacking in Ben Waldo's group here, they did it. They showed that these grass were perfused with blood. Mm -hmm. So they were alive, essentially. They had become part of the mouse brain. And the real amazing thing here is the both progressive neuronal differentiation and, you know, maturation of the graft. They had gliogenesis. They had integration of microglia and growth of axons to the contralateral. Like they put it yeah. in one side of the brain and they had axons that went to the other side. What? Yeah. And yeah, they showed functional neural networks. They showed with this um, in vivo extracellular recording and optogenics, they showed that there was intragraft neuronal activity, meaning that they had graft to host connectivity. There was synaptic function between the graft and those, which as you were saying, they had normal function. I mean, I, I think that this is dangerous to try and think of the idea that you're incorporating, you know, the human processes into the mouse brain, because then people start coming out of the woodwork about smart mice and all that. Yeah, no. So that's, that's another addition to this is the human cells did not make these mice super brainiacs, that these mice behaved <laughs> and they, uh, they, they did memory trials at the same level as control mice. Right. So they didn't right. get super smarts compared to everyone else <laughs> just because that. they got the brain cells. <laughs> I love how excited you are that they didn't become super brainiacs. So it's I think that's giving humans, yeah. humans too much credit. How do you know they didn't did the IPS cells weren't from a stupid person, Kiki? How did oh, you know that? that I don't There's know. Yeah, I don't know. Good question. You need a control group. We need to take your cells, babe. All right. Well, I'll tell you one thing. My own comment would be I, I would I would like to see more idea about like the volume, the mm. contribution. There's a lot of human cells in there. But I think the impression was made that you had like a big chunk of the mouse brain is. But yeah, that was at like a few weeks after. In the long term graph, it kind of thins out. But it's still amazing. Fred Gage, you earned your name, brother. Buckshot. Yeah. The big thing here is that because it's vascularized and the human tissue is surviving, for a length of time in the mouse brain, it can potentially be used to study disease in more ongoing fashion and a deeper fashion than you can with the organoids in a dish at this point in time. Oh, for sure. I mean, this is, he's going to make a billion dollars off of this in grant money. Yeah. But I would say on that note, as you say that, I'm forced to think of the shiver mice. Remember, what's his yeah. name? Steve Gold Goldman. He did graphs of human or, oh, it was aborted fetal material. But in that case, they had a huge amount of that mouse brain was comprised of 
human cells. So mm-hmm. I think that he's kind of set the bar in terms of super brainiac mice, as right. you refer to them being right. humanized. But I'm sure Fred Gage is right behind with some. I think the problem is the mice aren't, don't live long enough for Fred Gage. He needs a mouse that can live for like five years so he can train it to do calculus or something. <laughs> yeah, really check into it. All right. Well, there's that. That's a cool study. I got another cool study. And this is a little bit late on this, if I'm honest. It was published at the end of March. And I, I got to say, I dropped the ball. And it's worthy of it because, again, I love this kind of using science to explore fundamental ideas. This is iPS cells and this story out of NIH. So you got to respect NIH scientists because they do big, big science as well. You always think of the Harvard and the Yale and you know, Evangelos over there in Northwestern, all the big names, but Wei Li (laughs) doing it, the NIH at the I Institute, interestingly. Anyway, he takes, he, she, I'm confused on that one. My apologies, Wei. The move is that they do here is they take IPS cells from a hibernator, okay? And this is the thing, hibernating mammals, this one in particular that they took, it's called the 13-lined ground squirrel, can survive hypothermia under less than 10 degrees centigrade, Okay, like their body temperature, not like it's cold outside without injury. It's a cellular feat. It's a way that the cells are are made up and the the proteins and whatnot in the cells that allow them to withstand that. And it has a lot of clinical implications, which I'll get to at the end. But ultimately, it comes down to like cytoskeleton stability that is dictates whether or not the cells can survive. But the mechanisms underlying this are really totally unknown. So what they did here is they took this animal, the ground squirrel, and they made IPS cells from it. They compared it to human IPS cells. They did like a neural diff, and they chilled them. And they showed essentially, first off, that the neural cells derived from the hibernating IPS, the hibernator squirrel IPS cells, they were able to withstand that. They maintained the morphology and function, and the human didn't. And when they looked mechanistically at what was underlying that difference, they saw there was like different responses in mitochondrial and protein quality control to the cold. And essentially, I'm not going to explain how pharmacologically because I don't understand it that well, I'm afraid. What they did is they pretty much duplicated that process. They were able to superimpose that pharmacological quality control response in the mitochondrial protein. They were able to like overlay that in the human cells. And what they showed is that they were able to endow this cold stability onto human IPS-derived neurons, okay, in the dish. But then they were also able to do it on the actual a rat, which is not a hibernating mammal, on the retina from a rat, and showing that it preserved light responsiveness after prolonged cold exposure. So this is like a, a functional readout of non hibernating cells that with the pharmacological manipulation were able to preserve their function with prolonged cold exposure. And even when you took it beyond that, if you did that manipulation in kidneys from a rat, so cold store the kidneys, they were much more robust in the face of the cold and then coming back into the warm. So the idea here is huge because it's about essentially shelf life. You could maintain shelf life of cells and or organs to prolong them. And, you know, it's well known that there's an increased survival in patients in acute situations, acute injury, if their body is chilled. So if you mm-hmm. can chill the body and at the same time preserve cellular function in the face of that chilling, you know, we're talking about hibernation, Kiki. 
And we're talking about cryopreservation for space travel to the nearest oh, star. To the- <laughs> that is true. Right? I didn't think of that. Generational wow. space travel, cryopreservation for human bodies for how long? You know, how that far can the spaceship go? Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. Somebody call Elon. <laughs> there, yes, are very important, wonderful, right now clinical applications that this could have if it works out and proves itself in that manner. But the, you know, science fiction standard of it, I mean, next step is cryopreserving people who have diseases, preserving their bodies until treatments come around Mm. and then bringing them back to life to treat them. Cryopreserving people for space travel. I mean, there are other kind of far-fetched applications that are, you know, maybe not so far-fetched with stuff like this. I wouldn't be cryopreserved. Nah, yeah, I don't need it. <laughs> if I'm done, I'm done. Exactly. <laughs> I'm hoping to slide into home base going, yes, <laughs> I made it. <laughs> sure you will. You've deserved, you've earned it. All right, well, that's it. Let's get to talking with my man, Evangelos. Evangelos Kiskinis, yes. We are going to move into our interview. But before we do, I'd like to tell you that Stem Cell Technologies has an awesome webinar available that answers the question, what are cerebral organoids, right? What are they exactly? These bunches of cells, but you know what? We want to learn more about it. And so in a recorded webinar, Dr. Madeline Lancaster describes her groundbreaking discovery. These mini brains are three-dimensional and grown from pluripotent stem cells. The organoids are organized (laughs) in layers similar to the developing human brain. And this complexity makes them physiologically relevant models to study neurological development and disease. So if you're interested in cerebral organoids, you can view a recorded webinar. It's available for you at www.stemcell.com slash minibrains. That's stemcell.com slash minibrains. All right, into our interview. Our guest today is Evangelos Kiskinis. He is an assistant professor in neurology at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. His lab focuses on addressing fundamental aspects of the biology of human neurons in the context of physiological conditions and in the context of disease. Amongst other techniques, his lab uses stem cells to study motor neuron diseases like ALS. And here to share his latest findings with us is Dr. Kiskinis. Welcome to the show. Welcome. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. You have been on the show once before, but this is predating myself and Dalen, so we're going to have to do it all over again. Sounds perfect. (laughs) Just pretend you've never been here before. (laughs) We know that, that your previous interview was rather short, so hopefully we can dig into things a little bit more. But just to get started, can you give a bit more of an introduction of yourself and the focus of your lab's work? To our audience. Yeah, absolutely. So I am molecular biologist by training. So I did my grad school studies in England at Imperial College. And then I moved to the United States to join Kevin Egan's lab for a postdoctoral fellowship, where I basically trained in stem cell-based technologies and really how to utilize iPSC approaches to study neurological diseases. And the major focus at the time was 
this is back, I guess, in 2008 when IPSCs had just happened. So part of my focus there was to try and figure out whether we could really use induced pluripotent stem cells to study neurological diseases. We try to address questions which at the time were important, like are IPSCs robust enough? Are they as good as human embryonic stem cells, which was like the prototypical way of studying, of studying diseases at the time? And since then, basically, I moved to Northwestern in cold January back in 2015 to set up my own lab here at the Department of Neurology. And I'm quite excited because this is a clinical department. So I'm surrounded by basically neuroscientists and clinicians that study, that see the patients that have the diseases that we want to study using our stem cell-based approaches. In the lab, there are two major clinical interests. The first one is ALS, modern neuron disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, or ice packet challenge disease, as some people call it these days. And the other one is pediatric epilepsy. So we are really interested in utilizing our approaches to try and understand these very aggressive epileptic syndromes that are caused by mutations in ion channels, such as sodium channels and potassium channels because we think that we can uh, get an insight into how these diseases develop using our approaches. You're relatively uh, you know, new assistant professor, not new, you've been there around three years, and you grew up in the field, let's say, with IPS. And I'm not trying to say uh, Feinberg is small ball by any means. I mean, it's a big name in the field and very clinically focused, like you said, but coming out of Harvard and England and the, the crucible of egg and lab and all that, what would you say, just as a guy who's really been in the thick of things at the most intense level of competition and backstabbing, I mean, people can be serious at Harvard, going out on your own, starting out, what would you say, I mean, could you just give me a little insight into the differences, like maybe pros, cons of the, that Harvard-type atmosphere versus where you are now? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would say that the major difference is that, you know, I feel that, the, that I've always felt that there's room to grow here. Harvard and, and Boston is the mecca, one of the meccas of, you know, stem cell research. Almost every stone you turn, there was somebody else underneath working, already <laughs> doing the thing that you just thought of that you wanted to do. So coming to a, a smaller place where, you know, stem cell science has not exploded, has this, uh, gives you the opportunity to basically grow and develop you know, an independent research program, I would say. Other than that, I don't know. People often say, oh, you know, are people more collaborative here, you know, in Chicago? Then I don't know that they are more collaborative, but I do think that there's more room for collaboration. I think this would be the major differences in terms of the science. I think another, you know, dramatic difference for me is that when you live in Boston and Cambridge, you know, everybody you meet has just published a science paper. So whereas in Chicago, you know, science is a smaller part of the city. This has its pros and cons, but I think that's the, probably the most dramatic thing that I've noticed coming here. It sounds as though the environment that you're in, though, is I mean, just the, the way you described it and the sound of your voice when you said it, being surrounded by clinicians and neuroscientists, being able to do your basic research alongside the actual patient application, that it this is the perfect situation for you to grow a lot of the work that you're doing. And a lot of the work that you've published has been this kind of patient-derived, induced pluripotent stem cell line work. Can you talk a little bit more about how you've been using that 
and how you collaborate with the clinicians to be able to do that work? This was one of the main reasons why I was attracted to coming to a place like Northwestland. So there's a great pediatric epilepsy clinic here in the Children's Hospital, which is only a block away from my lab. I can actually see it looking outside my window right now. And there's also a great ALS clinic here, which sees the largest population of ALS patients in the Midwest. The two major diseases that I was interested in studying, there was a very strong clinical presence here. I would say that there was, you know, so that was important to me. And there was also room for extensive interaction and collaboration. So particularly when it comes to epilepsy, there's fabulous clinicians here that are really interested in in caring for their patients. But, you know, there wasn't an established platform for collaborating with a stem cell, with stem cell labs or neuroscience labs that could model these diseases. So I saw that as a unique opportunity. Going back to being surrounded by neuroscience and neurologists, I think it's important, particularly for somebody like me, that, like I said, I'm not a trained neuroscientist. And I think in our heart, we're still a stem cell lab, but we're trying to become a neuroscience lab. And I think, uh, you know, we are affected by our surroundings. We are surrounded by the people that can teach us a lot of the things that we don't know, which is great for us. So you uh, are really going basic on the kind of fundamental aspects of ESL differentiation to neurons, is that correct? And motor neurons in particular, and how methylation plays a really important role. Now, can you kind of elaborate on your recent study that was just uh, published in this month's issue of Cell Stem Cell? Yes, absolutely. So I almost think that you can't study, you can't model disease without understanding development. So that's one of the reasons why we initially got interested in understanding how modern neurons develop in the system that we're actually utilizing to model the disease, which is basically stem cells. So that's one of the reasons. The other reason is that I've had a long-standing interest in DNA methylation processes. This is, I did some DNA methylation work for my, during my graduate school, and I've always been intrigued by the potential role that DNA methylation process might play in the central nervous system, and particularly in post-mitotic cells. We've known for a long time through beautiful mouse work and developmental work that the players in the DNA methylation processes, like the enzymes that methylate and demethylate DNA, are expressed in post-mitotic cells. We know from transgenic mouse models that they have, if you knock some of these out, there's you know strong developmental phenotypes. However, what we don't know is what is the connection between DNA methylation and functional output or, or development, particularly at the resolution of specific loci that are affected. We were intrigued by that. We knew that motor neurons specifically express significant levels of one of these enzymes called DNMT3A. We decided to investigate that. So we teamed up with a great collaborator, Alex Meisner, who is a guru of DNA methylation, I guess. And uh, we decided to combine his expertise in DNA methylation analysis at the global level and our expertise in cellular differentiation and functional output of, of neuronal, of modern neurons specifically, to try and dissect the role that the DNMT enzymes might be playing in this process. So what we found through a combination of approaches is that there's a very finely tuned role that DNMT3A specifically plays during this process through its enzymatic function by directing, and specifically what it does is it it directs 
the transitional steps that stem cells go through from pluripotent stem cell to a committed neuroprogenitor to a committed modern neuroprogenitor and eventually to a, a post-mitotic modern neuron. So the way we studied this is we used some CRISPR knockout stem cell lines that Alex Meisner had created, lines that lacked either DNMD3A or DNMD3B, which is the other de novo methyltransferase, or both of these enzymes together. And we started by asking a very simple question, do these lines retain the ability to make postmitotic human modern neurons? We found that the answer to that question was yes, they did retain the ability, but with differential efficiencies. The most pronounced effects were in lines that lacked one of these enzymes, DNMT3A specifically, and we took it on from there to try and dissect out what the specific role in the, of that enzyme or of the lack of methylation in that process was. So it turns out that what DNMT3A does is it methylates key transcription factors that mediate these transitional steps, such as PAC6 or ARCs, which govern all neuronal progenitors or cells that drive the formation of the floor plate, respectively, in the spinal cord. And the lack of appropriate denomethylation patterns leads to defective differentiation. The other thing that we found was that postmitotic motor neurons that do make it through this defects and, and become postmitotic are dysfunctional in a number of different ways. They have irregular firing patterns. They express, they misexpress a number of ion channels. They have morphological deficits and so on. We're really interested in understanding what the connection between these phenotypes are and the defective denomination. That's the one thing that we haven't really addressed properly. And that's the next step of this work, I think. Yeah. So actually going in to figure out that link between the disease and the possible transcription modulators. What would be controlling the DNMT3A from the get-go to determine whether or not it's turning up or turning down these determinants of what the cells become, right? Yeah, that's a really intriguing question. And you brought up the aspect of disease. That's the other reason why, one of the other reasons why we got interested in this. So, you know, there's been a long-standing correlation between irregular DNA methylation patterns and, and neurological disease. Specifically, for example, ALS, people have looked at in methylation patterns and using mouse models or patient tissue. But of course, that's, you know, the whole gamish of the tissue itself. We've known for a little while that there are differences in the demethylation patterns between health individuals and patients, that, between the brains of health individuals and ones that have ALS or FTD, which is a related dementia. But, but we don't know what the functional relevance of that is, whether the signal reflects differences in the patterns in motor neurons or cortical neurons or astrocytes. And these are some of the questions that we can address by taking a reductionist stem cell-based approach. You know, we can ask, well, is there an effect on, on motor neurons or what? And we can also ask whether these defects can really be drivers of these irregular denomination patterns can really be drivers of neural defects, or is it the other way around? Is it that the neuron, you know, is defective for other reasons and as part of its degeneration, it loses its methylation pattern. This is a really intriguing question. Which comes first. Yes. So I, being a basic researcher, I hate it when people ask me this, and I hate myself for being this guy, because I know it's enough. I mean, having the platform to ask these questions is enough. But the reason I ask is because people want to know, Evangelos, and also more, is because in your paper you actually use these catalytically inactive Cas9 CRISPR approach to 
like rescue the methylation defect in the DNMT3A knockout lines, is there like theoretically, let's say, if you could deliver it in a safe way, would it be kind of feasible, you think, to mitigate motor neuron or other neurological degenerative disease using a kind of methylation rescue approach? Is that even feasible? That's an intriguing question. So this is a fascinating tool. So this is an inactive CRISPR fused to, in our case, the, the entire enzyme, DNMT3A. And what we've done is we've used guides that will target this to the particular loci that we identified as being irregularly or demethylated, I guess, and restored methylation patterns on site and then restored function. I think this is an exciting tool, but however, what we also found when we looked at global demethylation patterns in the cells where we use this targeted approach, we found that there were um, off-target effects of this, or a better way of putting that is on-target but off-guide effects. So in other words, we used a, a knockout line that had a number of demethylated regions, and we used a CRISPR to target methylation at two specific loci. Using targeted methylation analysis, we found that indeed the methylation in, in those two loci was restored. But then we asked, well, what about the rest of the loci that are demethylated in these knockout cells? And it turns out that a, large, a significant proportion of those are also remethylated. It's not that the CRISPR, which makes us think that it's not that the CRISPR just goes everywhere and starts methylating the whole genome. It almost knows where it needs to go. So that's why I refer to them as on-target but off-guide effects. So the degree at which this happens is a little bit unclear. We need to do more of this. And that's one of the things that we're doing in collaboration with Alex right now. I think when it comes to your question, could we use this tool to do targeted sort of therapeutics? I think we need to address the off-target effects first. But if that's not a major problem, then potentially yes. It's one of the questions we're interested in addressing now. So we're using this tool to you know, as an alternative to an SSRNA approach, for example, you know, can we, instead of knocking a gene down, can we just silence it? And it does seem to work pretty well in terms of on target, but we're still concerned about off-guide effects. I love this idea of the difference between actually, you know, snipping the DNA, cutting things in and out versus the epigenetic effect of shutting down a segment of DNA for a while so it's not accessible during that transcription translation process, you know, just changing the accessibility. And that's, I think, recently that, I mean, that's just a brand new way of looking at how we can affect the phenotype in a cell. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That's why I think there's a lot of excitement about this tool. I think if it works well and if it's targeted enough, it could really help us address some of these questions that we've been talking about, which is, is there functional relevance of individual denomination loci? So that's one question. And also do these targeted sort of therapeutic approaches at the epigenetic state. So it's an exciting tool. All right, let me ask you to take a position here. Your boy... Kevin Egan, he's my, I like him too, he's my friend. I don't know if you would call me a friend, but I like you, Kevin. But he talks about now, you know, recently at P53 and this whole idea of, you know, you get these, you take cells, you put them in culture, bad things happen, maybe precluding and putting them back into people. I feel like maybe there's this idea floating around and will probably emerge and be brought to light that anything 
anytime you take cells. Cord blood. If you take cord blood and expand it in vitro, you're going to introduce some kind of mutations. The whole artifact of ex vivo growth is probably not good for clonal expansion of these types of gain-of-function mutations. So as a guy who grew up in cells and cell therapy and that idea, but a guy who's now maybe kind of broaden your repertoire of tools for addressing disease, where do you think, do you think we're ever going to be really realize this goal of cell therapy? And like, if so, I mean, forget about five to 10 years or anything like that, but just like, what's it going to take in terms of safeguards? It's a long answer you would have to give to that, but maybe you could give us just a little brief glimpse into your thought process. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a, an interesting and vital question. There's a few things to think about. So I think, first of all, we need to do as much as we can in order to understand what is the genomic burden that these cells that we expand in vitro, what is it? You know, so as an example, Kevin's work highlighted that a lot of the stem cells that, that people have been using accumulate mutations that could be detrimental in P53. And I would advocate that we need to do more of that and try and understand as much as we can about what mutations, what are the types of mutations that accumulate, and on what level does that happen? Only if we know what happens can we design proper assays and tests to you know, respond to that and QC, quality control, anything that will go into a patient. I would say this is one aspect of it. But the other aspect is, what is the functional relevance or importance of some of these mutations? You mentioned cord blood cells. I don't follow the literature that closely when it comes to that, but the more we sequence, you know, at the single cell level, even at the bulk level, different types of cells and tissues, the more mutations we're finding. And, and it's unclear to me what the functional relevance or significance of these mutations are. I think we have to address this issue both ways. We have to understand what happens to the cells we grow in culture and we prepare, but we also have to understand what happens to the cells that already exist within ourselves, like, you know, or cord blood cells or whatever, you know, do they, does a small proportion of them always have these mutations and what's the functional relevance of them? I don't think we really know that. So it's, we're still alive. Cells are still exactly. in play. Exactly. I would think so. Yes. And from what you're doing with your next steps in this work, I mean, this particular study used human embryonic stem cell lines and it's very, like, as we've mentioned, just very basic research into the developmental aspects of this. But are you planning at some point of looking at this more in your patient-derived lines? Yes. So I think there's a few things that we're interested in. So the first one is we're really interested in understanding what would happen, what the role of denomethylation would be, is actually in a post-mitotic modern year. So everything that we've done looked at how denomethylation defects affect the differentiation and development of these cells. But the lack of denomethylation was there from the beginning. And we know that it, when that happens, what we found is that there's defects in the differentiation and also defects in the postmitotic cells. But really interested in understanding is what would happen if we turned off denomethylation enzymes once the cells become postmitotic and become functional. Really want to understand whether denomethylation plays some sort of role in plasticity of these neurons function and so on. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is understanding if denomethylation plays any role at all in disease processes. There's been a few interesting studies recently. So in a, a genome-wide association study that was, that was published a couple of years ago for ALS patients, there was DNMT3A, the actual enzyme that we studied in this paper, was at the cusp of being significantly enriched 
for mutations in, in ALS patients. So we are perhaps, so it felt short of significance, perhaps because we just didn't have enough patients. So we're looking into that in collaboration with some ALS geneticists. And we also have in our hands stem cell lines from ALS patients that have mutations in this gene, iPSC lines. So we're also going to, to try and understand if there are any phenotypic effects in these patient motor neurons that have these what, what seem to be like loss of function mutations in DMD3. This is where we're going to take this work, I think. Well, man, very exciting. I got another bit of excitement here. We have a new segment in the show. You know, okay. you were on the show before, but you didn't know about our new segment. It's called the last question segment, all right? Makes sense. You got to end with the question or better an answer. But this is an education show. We got a lot of young scientists listening. You're an inspiration and a role model. So we're going to have Kiki give you the last question on that note. Yes. So on that note, as Dalen said, we are an education show and many of our listeners are young scientists and you having moved from your postdoctoral career into your professorial career only recently, you have, you're a lot closer to them than many late stage researchers as a young investigator. So as a young investigator, do you have any specific advice for graduate students and postdocs for them? when it comes to their research career and moving into a role as an investigator? It's a little bit mundane, but, but I think it, you really have to be interested and like what you're doing. And I think this is something that, that you have to take with you at every level, whether you're an undergrad working in a lab, whether you're a grad student trying to do uh, you know, your PhD, whether you're a postdoc trying to publish a big paper, or whether you're you know, a junior assistant professor or like myself or an established senior professor, you really have to be interested in the questions you're asking. That's the first and most important step. I think the other one, the one that comes after that is, is anybody else interested in this besides <laughs> myself? Every day when I come into work, I try and ask myself both of these questions, you know, for all the different projects that we have in the lab. Am I really interested in this? Is this why? And would other people think that this is, if we do make it and find the answer, would other people think that this is important and interesting enough? I think these two things are linked and I think that's the platform for everything else. So that's my advice. I think it's fantastic advice. I mean, in science, it is a very, you have to be dedicated to what you're doing to get forward in your career. You have to spend your time working on it. And if you're going to be dedicating and spending your time, you better like what you're doing. Absolutely. <laughs> and if you want to get funding. <laughs> yeah. And for the impact. Yeah. Other people, it shouldn't just be something that's you and into your, you know, it's not, oh, I like figuring out uh, fingernail mites. Know. How many people are interested in fingernail mites? I don't know. I'm interested now. If they now really you exist. are. <laughs> I might have a change of career. Yeah, no, I think that is fantastic advice. And I hope that young trainees do begin asking themselves that question. And I hope that it helps them in their career. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Kiskinis. It was just wonderful to talk with you about your research. Yeah, thank you guys. I really enjoyed this and thank you for doing this. I think, you know, your podcast is is a lot of fun and I think it's important. I think it's important to make science accessible and fun and thank you for your time as well. Thank you, Evangelist. You know, we care about it. 
And now we just we're That's, trying to make other people care about it. Exactly. <laughs> and now we know at least one other person cares about it. Mission accomplished. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Stem Cell Podcast. We are so glad that you spent your time with us today. Please be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, or you can always email us info at stemcellpodcast.com. We do still have a survey. You can answer our questions at stemcellpodcast.com as well. And be sure to tune in for our next episode. Dalen, Dr. Kiskinis, this concludes episode 115 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for another great show.